You're listening to an Axe Church sermon. If you haven't heard of Axe Church before, we are a church in Camas, Washington. You can check us out at axecamas.org. You can see what we're about and what we're up to. We're glad you're listening today and hope you enjoy this sermon. I have had a number of experiences in the ocean. I have kind of this love not love as much, um, I didn't want to say hate, uh, relationship with the ocean. Some of you have heard some of my stories. You remember the, the one maybe from some time back. This is where it pays off to have been here for a long time. Uh, some time back, I told you the one where I went out and I was boogie boarding. It was like winter time. It was all dark and like stormy and whatever. And I'm going out and, the, you know, out in Oregon, the ocean is basically black. It's not that nice blue thing that you see in Hawaii. It's just in the wintertime, it's just this black mess. You can't see anything. You just assume that Jaws is under you the entire time, right? And so I'm going out there, and I mean, out of nowhere, and probably, you know, this far in front of me, the sea lion pops up out of the water, oh, like that, <laughs> right? Right in front of me. Um, and I don't, you know, people think sea lions are cute. I don't know why, because you obviously haven't had one pop up in front of you in the ocean. The water got a lot warmer around me. Um, and yeah, it was scary, right? It was scary because that's a huge animal in a place where I'm not in my element, right? Not that I'm that fast on the ground, but I'm really not fast in the water. And so I had that. I've had, I told you about the time where I was a little kid and I almost got sucked out in the riptide um, in California and the guy saved me. And, and I've had a couple other times like that where I've been kind of, you know, out in the ocean and sucked back, you know, and it looked like it was over. It looked like it was over, and, and yet I was saved. Obviously, I'm here, so you know the story doesn't end. Yeah, and I'm still out in the ocean somewhere. Um, I, I was saved each time. Each time I prayed hard, each time I was saved. Um, but it didn't seem like it at the time when I was sitting there, and the shore was getting further away, and I didn't know what I could do, and I didn't know how to fight that big ocean. But I did, I did pray. I did look to the Lord. And the Lord has saved me a number of times. And so today we're going to see Paul and Luke and, and their crew uh, in a bad situation in the ocean. Um, this is kind of an exciting uh, chapter, chapter 27 of Acts. It's sort of action-packed. We're going to see this, this storm and the ships. and the, it's, it's pretty exciting stuff. Um, but as you think about it, and this is a much worse situation than I've ever been in, but as you uh, think through this and as you're going through it, I want you to see what we can learn from it. I want you to think about um, the fact that sometimes you're in a storm. And I want you to think about when you're in a storm, how you deal, how you react, how you walk through that when a storm comes. As we study through the scripture today, I want you to think about that, and then we're going to come back to that a little bit later. But let's, let's get into it. Acts 27, where are we? As you may remember, uh, Paul has been arrested. He's been in front of two governors, Felix and Festus, um, two, two governors, and then this client, King Agrippa, he was also in front of him, not so much for a trial, but sort of to explain himself. So he's been through all of this, and remember that the Jews came, and, and they continued to accuse Paul, and Paul eventually says, look, I appeal to Caesar. Remember, he's a Roman citizen. So he has the right to appeal to Caesar. Once Festus says, hey, do you want to go to Jerusalem and let me judge you there? Because he could see that Festus was sort of kind of giving in to the Jewish leadership. Uh, at that point, Paul realized this is not going to work. I've just got to appeal to Caesar. He does that. And so where we are now is that Paul is about to be sent to Rome to see Caesar. And if we remember this from a couple chapters ago, in chapter 23, Paul had been arrested and the commander of the garrison had brought him before the Sanhedrin. He'd come back um, after that harrowing experience where they about pulled him in pieces, and he's sitting there, and Jesus actually comes to him. And so we have Jesus saying to Paul in, in chapter 23, verse 11, it says this, but the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. So we know, here's a spoiler alert that Paul already knows, what we see him going through today, we know that he can't die. Because Jesus has told him he's going to bear witness at Rome. And it does not seem like Paul is going to make it in this story. And yet we can, and I think he was, and we'll talk through it a little bit, aware of the fact that he had to make it. Because when Jesus says something's going to happen, it's going to happen. And so let's get started. Um, chapter 27, if you have your, your Bible, you can open that up. Your phone, we'll have it on the screen. However you want to read it, you just have it your way. But let's get into it. Chapter 27, verse 1, it says, And when it was decided that we should sail to Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to one named Julius, a centurion of the Augustan regiment. So I want you to notice up front the word we. Of course, we means that Luke, who, who is the one who the Holy Spirit inspired to write the book of Acts, was with them. 
So this is one of those places, and we've seen others, where Luke is definitely with Paul, and, and, he's, and he's going together with Paul, and so he's an actual, full-on eyewitness to the events that we're going to look at today, and that's the reason why he's able to be so clear and concise and, and, and bring so much to the story, because he was there. He was there. It says, so entering the ship of Adramidium, we put to sea, meaning to sail along the coast of Asia. Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, was with us. Now, some of you may or may not remember Aristarchus, but Aristarchus has actually been in the story a few times. Back in, I think it was chapter 19, you may remember that Paul and the, and the boys were in Ephesus. Um, well, boys and girls were in Ephesus. And, and the silversmiths, remember Demetrius, the silversmith, was getting all sideways because all these people were coming to Christ and less people were buying his little statues uh, of the god Diana, the goddess Diana. And so he got upset and he riled people up against Paul. And instead of Paul, they end up grabbing Aristarchus and I think a guy named Gaius and dragging them into the theater. That's Aristarchus. So he was with Paul then. And then we see later on, I believe in chapter 20, we see that Aristarchus was with Paul when he left to make his way to Jerusalem, which is the most recent trip, right? He comes to Jerusalem, that's where he gets arrested, and that's what started this whole thing. And now we realize that Aristarchus has been with Paul in Caesarea for the whole two years that he's been in prison there. So Aristarchus, and by the way, later you'll see that Aristarchus is in Rome with Paul and actually is arrested and imprisoned. If you read Colossians 4.10, you can see where Aristarchus is actually in prison with Paul in Rome. At this point, he does not seem to be in prison. At that point, he is, I'm assuming, because he's preaching Jesus Christ in Rome, he gets arrested. But this is a friend. This guy's a friend, and you don't hear about him a lot. But that's, you don't hear about a lot of people a lot, right? We've talked about how, how the church and the ministry works and how there's some people who are a little bit more sort of out front and people sort of know who they are. But then there's all the people who are making, actually making everything happen, actually doing all the work. And Aristarchus is one of these guys who's been consistent. This is true Christ-following friendship. I mean, if I had been dragged into the theater by that mob in Ephesus because I had been hanging out with Paul, I'm done right? I'm finding new buddies that don't get me dragged into the theater by a mob that wants to mess me up. Aristarchus stuck with it. He didn't stick with it there. He kept following Paul, knowing that Paul's always getting himself into trouble, right? Stays with him, stays with him while he's in, in prison in Caesarea all these years, and now he's headed to Rome with him. I mean, this is serious, serious Christian friendship, and it's not because Paul is such a great guy, although I'm sure he was a nice guy, but you can be the nicest guy in the world, and maybe it's not worth being around all of that. Aristarchus loved Jesus. And because he loved Jesus, and Jesus had clearly told Aristarchus that his job was to stay close and minister to Paul, and in that ministry, he did it. And he continued to do it, and he was faithful to Paul. I hope all of us, as we go through things, and as we, as we walk through this life, will have those who will stick with us as Aristarchus stuck with Paul. All right, let's keep going. Verse 3. And the next day we landed at Sidon, and Julius, that was a centurion, remember, um, treated Paul kindly and gave him liberty to go to his friends and receive care. So they get to Sidon. Julius lets Paul go. There's Christians there in Sidon, right? The churches, we remember when the people had dispersed from Jerusalem some time back, years and decades ago, and one of the places where they probably had a church was in Sidon, and so Paul shows up, and what do the Christians do? Oh, Here's Paul. Here's a Christian guy. I don't know that Paul knew all these people, but they, they knew who he was. They knew he was a Christian they, and so on. And so because back then there weren't denominations, there would have just been the church at Sidon. When he comes into town, these people immediately minister to his needs. I hope that someday Acts Church would be like that. I wish that Christ Church would be more like that. That when a new believer was in town, they knew exactly where to go to receive care, comfort, and all those kinds of things because believers were so connected to one another. Unfortunately, we can't get into all that today. Sometimes we're not as connected. But they were here, and Paul was able to go, and he was able to uh, be shown love and welcome by these people inside him. All right, it says this. When we had put to sea from there, we sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. And when we had sailed over the sea, which is off Cilicia, and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, a city of Lycia. All right, so they get to Myra. Now, you may or may not know that there's a very famous Christian leader that came from Myra. It was a man named Nicholas, was from Myra, and eventually he was sainted and became Saint Nicholas. You may know him as Santa Claus. 
okay? Um, he's from Myra, so hey, now you know something new for your trivia, crack game, or whatever. Uh, Santa Claus was from Myra. Uh, he probably does not deliver you presents, as it's most likely he was martyred during the Diocletian um, persecution. So that's not happening, but that is where the guy who, the, who sort of this thing came up around uh, and Santa Claus came up around was from. He's from Myra. It says this in verse 6, There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing to Italy, and he put us on board. All right, so what they would have done is it's probably a smaller ship that they had come on to this point. Then they get to this bigger port, and they get on this big ship that has grain. And these were big ships that could fit a lot of people. And the reason there were these big grain ships that would have been going towards Rome is because Rome had about a million people, okay? And they needed food. They constantly needed to import grain. And so these really big ships would come. They'd load up with wheat and other grains. They would take it to Rome. And so that's what they've done. They found one of those ships that's big enough to, to fit them all, and they're headed out towards, uh, towards Rome. It says, When we had sailed slowly many days, and arrived with difficulty off Nidus, the wind not permitting us to proceed, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salmone. Passing it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens near the city of Lycia. So here's, here's the deal. When you're traveling west in this area, at this time of the year, it is, at any time of the year, it's difficult. At this time of the year, it's incredibly difficult because the winds are always against you. So he's talking about selling slowly. He wasn't kidding. You could take a trip from Rome east the other way, and it might take you 10 days to travel the same exact route going west 50 to 70 days. So you're talking about a significantly, you're fighting the whole time. Just imagine, you know, you're trying to go upstream, right? You're fighting against the wind the whole time. So when he says, we were sailing very slowly, that's what he meant. Very slowly, they finally get themselves over to Crete, and they ended up in a place called Fair Havens. Now, I've got a map um, of what they've done so far. If you take a look at where they started, right, and they've, and they've taken this trip from Caesarea, Sidon, to Myra, down to, to Crete, where you see them now at Fair Havens. And so, right now, they're safe. They've made it somewhere. They're at, they're at Fair Havens. Let's see how things go from then. Verse 8, verse 9. Now when much time had been spent and sailing was now dangerous because the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Men, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only of the cargo and ship, but also our lives. Nevertheless, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship than by the things spoken by Paul. And because the harbor was not suitable to winter in, the majority advised to set sail from there. Also, if by any means they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete opening toward the southwest and northwest and winter there. All right. So, a bunch of time had been spent sailing. As I just told you, it takes a long time to try to make that trip west. Now, Paul realizes this is bad. It says the fast, right, after the fast. Now, the fast uh, is, is, a, is a Jewish holiday, the Day of Atonement. You may know it as Yom Kippur, okay? And, and this has already passed, which means we're at least late September, early October has already passed. So they're in the dangerous season, the time of the year when you do not sail a boat in this area. You just don't do it because you're going to die. And Paul knows that. In common sense, he's saying, listen, if you guys keep pushing this, we're going to die. We're going to lose the ship. We're going to lose the cargo. We're going to lose our lives. Now, I think Paul knew that he wouldn't lose his life because, as we said, Jesus has already told him he's going to make it to Rome, but he might be somewhat concerned for them. He's saying, this is a bad idea, but these guys get together and they decide to push. Now, you've got to ask yourself, why were they even doing this in the first place? Why didn't they winter way back earlier on? Why didn't they stay with Santa Claus, right, and Myra or whatever? Um, that's where I would have stayed. But why, why didn't they do that? Why did they keep pushing? Well, let me tell you, uh, like I said, Rome needed tons and tons of grain. A million people eat a lot of grain. And so Claudius, the, the emperor, the Caesar, he actually made basically a deal where he said, listen, I'm going to import grain all through even the winter, this, this horrible time to try to bring ships, but I will insure the ships against loss if they get lost at sea. So these ship owners and so on, it was worth it to them to take the risk, especially if they weren't on the ship, uh, to take the risk to send these ships to Rome because if they lost them, the emperor was going to pay them for them. And if they made it there, they were going to get paid for the, for the grain. So it was a win-win for them. So because they needed so much grain, they would push like this. Now, in this case, they're actually not pushing all the way to Rome. They just want to get out of Fair Havens and over to Phoenix, another harbor, because they prefer that harbor. I don't know why. 
I don't know why, but that's what they want to do. And so uh, let's see what happens to them. It says, when the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their desire, putting out to sea, they sailed close by Crete. But not long after, a tempestuous headwind arose called Euroclidon. So when the ship was caught and could not head into the wind, we let her drive. Okay. The soft south wind was blowing. Right? And everybody's like, oh, hey, it's all going to work out. See, this, you're wrong, Paul. We got the soft south wind blowing. Everything's going to be good. And so they get on the, on the ship and they start to take off. And what do you know? Within a very short time, they get jacked. All kinds of jacked up. Uh, the word Euroclidon is used here, um, and that is a, that's actually a word that's a combination of a, a Latin and a Greek word, but basically it's a northeaster, okay? It's a northeast wind that's, that's typhoon strength, okay? Typhoon, hurricane-type strength. This is a huge, horrible wind that has come through, and it takes the ship just way out of there. What's interesting about the word that he uses, Euroclidon, here, just as an aside, is that for a long time they, they assumed that that Luke made the word up. Those are the Bible scholars who were critical of whatever, and you know they're always looking for stuff. We've talked about this before. Where, where could Luke have said something that was wrong? So for many, many, many years, these scholars said, oh, Luke just was creative and just made that word up, as opposed to it being showing Luke's knowledge of having been there and of knowing the language that they use. So later on, go figure, the archaeologists have found an inscription in Latin uh, in a city in North Africa that shows that that word actually specifically was used to refer to a northeast wind. So Luke, far from making stuff up and being creative, was actually being incredibly precise about the exact language that would have been used in that region in that time to describe the wind that hit them. And so once again, we know that Acts is about facts. That's right. Acts is about facts. Okay. Let's see what happens here. So when the ship was caught and could not head into the wind, we let her drive. And running under the shelter of an island called Clauda, we secured the skiff with difficulty. Okay, it's the skiff. That's going to be the kind of like the lifeboat, the little boat that's out the back. They would, have, they would have normally dragged that boat on a normal cruise where they're just making it. That boat would have normally been in the water behind them being pulled by ropes. But in the storm, you can't let that happen because, of course, what will happen? It'll fill up with water and start dragging them down. So with difficulty, probably because it's full of water, they pulled that boat up onto the ship. When they had taken it on board, they used cables to undergird the ship. And fearing lest they should run aground on the Sirtis Sands, they struck sail and so were driven. So they would have at this time uh, done something with the ship. They think, they don't know for sure, but they think, the historians think that what they did was they would take these, these ropes, these cables, they would go over the front of the ship and bring them around and kind of bring them up and tie them tight so that the boards on the ribs of the ship would stay in and not break up if they hit a sandbar or get jacked up by the waves. So that's what they're doing. He's describing literally these guys are trying to make the ship more sound. Because this is a horrible storm that they're going through. And they talk about the Sirtis Sands, but this is this horrible, horrible sandbar that has jacked up tons of ships that they're heading into. So that's, that's what they're afraid of. And it says, And because we were exceedingly tempest-tossed, the next day they lightened the ship. On the third day we threw the ship's tackle overboard with our own hands. Now, when neither the sun, now when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest beat on us. All hope that we would be saved was finally given up. So they're over it, right? At this point, they've been jacked up for so long, they have no idea what's going on. They can't even, there's no sun, there's no stars, there's no nothing. The, the, the storm is complete. They cannot see which way is up, sideways, back, forth. They're going to die. That's what they think. They're giving up hope. They assume that they cannot be saved. And so Paul comes in with a word of encouragement. Let's look at verse 21. But after a long absence from food, then Paul stood in the midst of them and said, Men, you should have listened to me. <laughs> right? And, and not have sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss. And now I urge you to take heart. For there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For there stood by me this night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar. And indeed, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Therefore, take heart, men. For I believe that 
it will be, I believe God that it will be just as it was told me. However, we must run aground on a certain island. So, Paul first says, y'all should listen to me, right? Which I don't think he's like, I told you so. I don't think that's his attitude. I think his point is, you might want to start listening to me now, right? I think that, that Paul it has, has now shown some, so has gotten some juice towards being sort of a leader here. And so he's saying, hey, you guys, you guys probably should listen to me in the first place, but now I'm going to say something, and maybe you should listen to it now. And I think Paul is starting to get some respect, so he tells him, the, the, the cool thing is there's all these people, and of course, these are not believers. He's got a couple guys with him. But the rest of these people, these are, these are people from the Greek and Roman world. They worship all kinds of other uh, deities or nobody at all. These are, these are not believers. And yet Paul gets to say, look, I'm going to tell you about the one true God and what he's told me. And then, of course, if that comes true, that's going to be a pretty big testimony. So he tells him, look, this angel stood by me, right? And now, interestingly, the, what the angel said is that he's going to stand before Caesar. Before we knew that he was going to witness in Rome, now he knows he's going to be on trial before Caesar. He didn't know that when, when Jesus was talking to him, he didn't tell him that. He told him, he didn't tell him that much yet, just that he was going to witness in Rome. Now it comes out, oh, yeah, you're going to stand trial before Caesar. So that's, I don't know which is more, would I rather die in the shipwreck or, or stand trial before Caesar? I don't know, but uh, he's going to testify in Rome at this point. Okay, so um, the good news for the people on the ship is that this angel has told Paul, the Lord has said, they're not going to die. They're not going to die. Um, so let's keep going. Verse 27. Now when the 14th night had come, as we were driven up and down in the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors sensed that they were drawing near some land. Here's something kind of cool. About 100 years ago, according to my source, they did a study, like, a, like an intense study, and they asked these sailors from the Mediterranean, hey, this kind of northeastern wind and this kind of gale force wind and, and so on, how fast would the trip, ships travel and so on and so forth? And they were able to actually determine that 14 nights in, based on the speed, which I think is like a mile and a half an hour or something that, that the ship would have done, they would have been within a few miles of Malta which is where they eventually land. And so what, what Luke says here, even to the 49, again, just this detail. Who cares if it was 49? How about after a while, a couple weeks, right? He had 14 nights, and that happens to be exactly the amount of time that it would take to get from where they were at Fair Havens to where they end up at Malta. So it's kind of a cool thing that they did that study. At least that kind of stuff is cool to me. I don't know if it's cool to you. All right, so let's keep going. And they took soundings and found it to be 20 fathoms. And when they had gone a little further, they, found, they took soundings again and found it to be 15 fathoms. So they didn't have sonar, right? So what they did is they had these ropes with like lead weights at the end of them, and they would be marked with, with, uh, with distances. And so they'd throw those in the water and, and let them drag, and they'd see how deep it was. And so it's getting less and less deep. So they're clearly getting closer and closer to land. Then, fearing lest we should run aground on the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. Now, the stern, for those of you who don't know boats, is the back of the boat, and the bow is the front of the boat. Am I right about that, Dan? All right, good. Starboard? I don't know. That's the right, I think. Um, so the stern, so they, they dropped the anchors from the stern, and normally they would have actually dropped the anchors from the bow, but they dropped the anchors from the stern because they didn't want to completely stop the ship. They wanted to be able to slow it down, but let it continue its forward progress towards land. They're hoping to run aground, but not so fast that if they run into rocks or something, you know, the whole thing goes bye-bye. So that's why they've dropped these anchors, these four anchors out of the stern. And, as the, and they prayed for day to come. Well, yeah, I would be too. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, when they had let down the skiff into the sea under pretense of putting out anchors from the prow. I like this. So there's these sailors, and they're thinking, you know, this is not working out well. Um, and so they go over, and they're like, hey, we're going to let some anchors down from the prow. And they're just kind of you know, over there, and they're letting the, sh the little boat go down because they're going to jump in the boat and take off and leave all these. Not that smart to leave the Roman soldiers on the boat, because if they do get out, they're probably going to be upset that you took off on them. But in any case, these guys are trying to basically steal the skiff, let it down to the water and steal it, and try to get away themselves. Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the skiff and let it fall off. You think those sailors were upset with Paul? 
I, I don't know. Paul, you know, is always making people happy. This is just another instance where I think he's probably done that. He, he tattled on them, right? And he's like, if those guys leave, you're going to die too. And so the soldiers go over there, they cut the things, and the ship goes out, and I think they're probably a little bitter. That's my guess, but I don't know. Um, either way, that boat's gone. That way's out. But you should, it shows one thing. They're clearly looking at Paul for leadership. He says, do something, and they do it. They're clearly trusting him. It's probably their last best hope that Paul happens to be correct. All right. And as day was about to dawn, Paul implored them all to take food, saying, today is the 14th day you have waited and continued without food and eaten nothing. Yikes. Therefore, I urge you to take nourishment, for this is for your survival, since not a hair will fall from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and also took food themselves. Okay, so these guys had not eaten for 14 days. Now, um, I don't know how many times you've been on a boat in a storm, but I'm guessing that your, your belly, your tum-tum, probably doesn't feel very good, right? So they're, they're being tossed and turned for 14 days in this ship, and of course, the level of anxiety of, I'm going to die, 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 is probably not making you very hungry. So they've gone all this time without eating. They're probably more concerned about keeping the ship from breaking apart and all the rest of that stuff, but they have not, the seasickness, the anxiety, and so on, they haven't eaten for all this time. And so Paul's like, hey, let's eat something, which normally people feel better when they have something to eat. I know I do. Um, and so that's why I eat as often as possible. All right. So uh, he tells them to eat, and this is the really cool thing is Paul gets to pray to God and thank God and be thankful to God. In the middle of all this, in the middle of all that's going on, in the midst of this, he gets to, in front of these people, have a testimony where he's thanking God for this little thing, for this fact that they get to eat some food in front of all these people. And these people get to see that, that Paul has this, this unshakable faith. And it's a witness to all these people. So it's an amazing blessing that he gets to thank God for this food in front of all these people. In front of all these people. He gets to show that he's calm and thankful. And in all, we were 276 persons on the ship. So when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship and threw out the wheat into the sea. 276 people, that includes Paul. It's a lot of people, not, not a particularly high number for a ship like this. They could actually fit quite a few people, um, but that's a lot of people that were with Paul. That's a lot of people that God has promised he'll save, quite a few, right? And so they're there, and after they're done eating, they take all the sweet, which would have probably been in bags down in the, the hold of the ship, and they throw it all out in the sea, lightening it up, assumedly to make the ship lighter so that they could make landfall more easily. I'm just saying this. I'm not a sailor. I'm guessing that's why they did it. Okay. Um, so they throw the wheat out of the ship. When it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they observed a bay with a beach onto which they planned to run the ship if possible. And they let go the anchors and left them in the sea. Meanwhile, loosing the rudder ropes, and they hoisted the mainsail, to the wind, and made for shore. Okay. But, striking a place where two seas met, they ran the ship aground, and the prow stuck fast and remained immovable, but the stern was being broken up by the violence of the waves. So, I mean, think about this. All these days, just going through it. Paul's like, hey, Good things are going to happen here. God's going to save you and so on. They're like, okay, maybe something's going to happen. We had a meal, had some bread. We're good. We're ready to go. Hey, there's the land. We're going to make it. Hey, we're going to make it. Right? And they start to go. And then the boat sticks in this, basically the sandbar. And the waves are literally breaking the boat apart from the back, just tearing it up. That close to, to being saved. And right before they get there, now it looks once again like they're all going to die. Not fun, I'm guessing, not fun for them. All right, so what happens? And the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim away and escape. Well, that's nice. As some of you may remember, a Roman soldier, if they lost their prisoner, if their prisoner got away or escaped, the Roman soldier could have to face the same penalty that that prisoner would have had to face. So if any of these prisoners would have gotten death as a result of what they'd done, or even, uh, you know, a lashing, the soldier would have had to have that. So they'd rather kill these guys than let them possibly escape and be held accountable for them escaping. 
So that's not great for Paul, but that's what the soldiers want to do. Um, where are we here? Okay. But the centurion, wanting to save Paul, kept them from their purpose and commanded those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land, and the rest, some, some on boards and some on parts of the ship, and so it was that they all escaped safely to land. So the centurion likes Paul. Paul's been, as I say, kind of leading this whole thing, and for the sake of Paul, it doesn't sound like it was for the sake of any of the other prisoners, but for the sake of Paul, he says, don't kill the prisoners. You guys who can swim, jump off, which implies something. Not everybody on this boat could swim, which is interesting because I wouldn't get on a boat if I couldn't swim, right? Because if you can't swim, bad things will happen if something happens in the boat. So it's even scarier for those guys who couldn't swim. But he says some of them could swim, so they swam. The other people, they grabbed boards, they grabbed parts of the ship that were breaking off, and every single one of them makes it to the shore. Everyone is saved, just as the angel told Paul. Go figure. Now, this is kind of one heck of a piece of history. Uh, it's a great story. It's a very interesting story. If you like nautical tales, um, it's a good one. It's a good biblical nautical tale. Um, and so uh, <laughs> I've been on a boat before in just gentle waves, okay? Went on a whale watching thing. I was like in fifth or sixth grade. I mean, just, you know, the gentle whatever. And I lost my breakfast. So I cannot imagine what it would be like to be on a ship like this 14 days, of being caught in a typhoon. You can't see the sun. You can't see the stars. It's dark. It's horrible. I can't imagine what that would be like. And through all of that, though, God took care of these people. And so let's dig in to this just a little bit. There's a happy side and a sad side to the story, right? The happy side's really easy. They all got saved. None of them died. They all made it to the shore. God saw them all through. So that's, that's easy. That's the happy side. We'll kind of get back to that. It's an amazing thing. But what is the sad side? Well, there was some sad. There was some loss here, right? Um, first of all, how terrible it would have been to go through this. How horrible it would have been to have to go through this. The fear, the pain, the seasickness, the loss of hope, which is a horrible thing to experience. 14 days of that nonstop. Nonstop, Right? the difficulty. I mean, I, I don't like discomfort. I don't know how many people do. I don't, I don't like to go have to get up to get the remote if I left it in the kitchen when I got a snack. I'm like, seriously? Man, I just worked out to go get these Funyuns. Now I got to go back and get the remote, right? I mean, it's, nobody likes to be uncomfortable. It's not, it's not fun. We tend to take even the slightest discomforts and be upset about them. This was uncomfortable. This was sad. There's a loss that happened here. These people were in pain, constant, terrifying, real, nonstop pain for 14 days. So that was, that was a sad thing. They lost the grain, right? Gone. All that grain, all those people that could have been fed, gone. They lost the ship. Not cheap, okay? Ships would not have been cheap, so they lost that. And then the, also the kind of bummer for the leaders, the, the centurion and the owner of the boat and these guys on this is that they actually had been given good advice that they didn't take. And so there's even like a, a double whammy when something bad happens and when you were told before you did it that it was a bad idea, like the shame that comes along with that. All those things are pretty sad. They had good advice and they didn't do it. I remember when I was younger, I used to give fantastic advice, right? Um, you know, you have those friends where it's like so obvious what they should do. And they come to you and they're like, oh, you know, my girlfriend, you know, should I blah, blah, blah. And you're like, no, you know, you should do this thing. It's, it's really obvious. It's not like you're this great advice giver, but it's really obvious. And then they're like, absolutely, I'm going to do that thing. I'm definitely going to do that. That's, you're right. That's the best advice ever. And then they leave and they do the opposite, right? Completely the opposite. They never really do what they say they're going to do when you give them advice. And it always turns out bad. And you're kind of like, you don't really want to say, I told you so but you do, right? Because that's how we treat our friends. Um, and, and so you understand that like you've done that, you've gotten the good advice and then you've done the thing and it's ended up bad because you've gone the other way. I think there's some loss in that too. All of those things are kind of on the sad side of the coin. And we go through storms that have some happy and sad probably in them too, right? And sometimes in, in our storms in life, we're like Paul, we're like Paul, we, we were kind of dragged into it. You know, I mean, this guy's in chains. He's, he's been arrested. He's been stuck on the ship. He didn't choose to go do this. So sometimes we're like Paul, and sometimes, at least for me, more often, I'm more like the centurion and the ship owner, 
where maybe there's some good advice, maybe it seems unwise, maybe whatever, and I'm like, nah, we'll be fine. Let's do it. The south wind is blowing softly. Let's go. And then I end up in a storm because I'm an idiot, right? That's more likely to be my story. Although I'm not saying I've never been in a storm that wasn't my fault. I just don't remember. Um, Most of them have have been my fault. Um, But we we go through a lot of things, right? Sometimes it doesn't have much to do with our choices. Sometimes it's just you get cancer. You get sick, right? You, get some, you, you lose a loved one. You get laid off at work. Your spouse leaves you. Yeah? Real things, really bad, horrible storms that come that you didn't necessarily, you certainly didn't choose them. You didn't want them. And they happen. And you go through them. Like Paul was in this case, right? And in all these cases, the pain is incredible, and the, and the sadness is incredible, and, and sometimes like those who were on the ship with Paul for days, maybe weeks, maybe longer, maybe months, we can't see the sun or the stars, metaphorically, right? It's all dark. It's all rough. It's all difficult, and it seems like the storm won't stop, and so what does the Lord teach us through this storm? that Paul and his companions were in. The first thing I think that that God teaches us is that we are not immune from storms, okay? And this is important because here's the deal. Is your spiritual resume as good as Paul's? How many times have you been beaten, imprisoned, stoned? That's with rocks. Don't raise your hand about how many times you've been stoned. (laughs) People are like, hey, I've done that one. I guess my spiritual resume is pretty good. Uh, no. How many times have, have you been, had rocks thrown at you, been beaten, been run out of a city? How many, how many churches have you started? How many thousands have you preached? I mean, this guy had a spiritual resume. He'd put it on the line for the Lord. He loved Jesus. He followed him. He had faith. He trusted. This guy was a, a believer. He loved Jesus, completely loved Jesus. And yet, he still went through the storm, Right? Not only that, he told them, don't put out to sea. Bad things go. So not only has he done good, you know, done, follow the Lord, trust the Lord, live for the Lord. He also told these guys not to do it, and they took him anyway. And these, and these very unfortunate things happen. Now, if it's going to happen to Paul, if Paul still had to go through the storm, then guess what? So do you. You're going to go through storms. You cannot avoid storms by having enough faith. Listen carefully. You cannot avoid storms in your life by having enough faith or working hard enough or volunteering enough or doing enough good things. Paul had all that, and he didn't avoid this storm. Anyone who tells you that following Christ means health and wealth and no difficulties in life and that your family is going to be perfect all the time, your kids are going to be, you know, you can put them up on Facebook every day about the new awards that they're winning and whatever, and everything's going to be perfect, and you're going to have this wonderful life, and everything's great if you follow Jesus and have enough faith. They're trying to sell you something. It's not true. There is nothing in here that would remotely suggest that following Christ somehow gets you out of the curse that the whole world has to deal with. Now, do we see it pushed back in the church? Absolutely. Are there all kinds of things that we see, like this here, where God saved Paul from the storm? Do we see that? Absolutely we do. But the idea that you're not going to go through storms, that's just not scriptural. Or Paul wouldn't be going through it here. So you will go through storms. You are not immune. So the first thing to recognize is, it's happening. This thing is happening. Here's the other thing. Jesus can calm storms, but that doesn't mean he always will. So there's a story, if you want to turn to Luke chapter 8, uh, verses 23 through 25, it says this. Now it happened on a certain day that he got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us cross over to the other side of the lake. And they launched out. But as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake and they were filling with water and were in jeopardy. And they came to him and awoke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. Then he arose and rebuked the wind and the raging of the water, and they ceased, and there was a calm. But he said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid and marveled, saying to one another, Who can this be? For he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. Listen, there's so much in this story, but for now, I want you to understand something. Jesus is in control. 
He commands the wind and the waves. If he wants to, he can say, quiet, be done, and it will stop. Jesus has that power. Jesus has the power. He has the power to push back the curse. We talked about this last week. We're, we're part of his kingdom in the church, and we get to see, we're the only ones who get to see this level of him pushing back the curse, and that's who Jesus is, and that's what he does. But that doesn't mean he will. Whatever your current storm is, or whatever storm you're just headed out of, or the one that you're just headed into, or whatever the case is in your life, whatever it is, remember, Jesus is in control. He has the ability to just pull you out of it. He does. He's the king. He can push back the curse, and he does so as a witness to this dying world and the dying people in it. Jesus can calm the storm with a word. And let me tell you, Paul knew that. I'm guessing Paul was praying for that. Jesus, just do it. Just calm the storm with a word. Just just make it go away. That's what I would have been praying for. That's what you would have been praying for, right? Let's have this thing be over. Let's have this thing be over. But Jesus didn't calm the storm that way. If Paul prayed that, he didn't, Jesus did not answer that prayer that way. You may have storms that come in life, and Jesus may calm them. Just like David in the Bible says, I can say the same thing. The Lord has drawn me out of many waters. There have been many times in my life where I have been in a storm, I have been in the midst of a trial or whatever, and Jesus has taken me out of it with a word. He's just extricated me. All of a sudden, I get a call and the money came in right? Or, or whatever it is, you know, he's changed the heart of, of a friend or my wife from, you know, being upset with me or whatever. Whatever the case is, God has taken me out of many storms, but some storms I've had to weather through. And so you probably will too. You'll probably have both experiences, but just because Jesus can calm the storm doesn't mean that he thinks that's what's best. That's not what he did here. Here's another thing. Christ followers should not be giving up. Christ followers should not be losing hope. Luke says, all hope that we would be saved was finally given up. Now, I think Luke's just being honest probably about where he's at. Hey, this thing is over. It's time to go. It's time to die. I think that's what he's thinking, okay? I don't know if he's speaking for Paul, but I doubt it. Because Paul knew that Jesus had told him he was going to go testify in Rome. So I, I have to believe that, that Paul, in the amount of faith that we've seen Paul has, believed that somehow or another he was going to make it to Rome. But apparently Luke and maybe everybody else on the ship had given up hope. We can't do that. There is a time that will come, if Jesus doesn't come back first, where you will die. That's going to happen. I've always said I hope that I would die, like my great-grandfather, that I'll die peacefully in my sleep, not yelling and screaming in terror like the passengers in his car. Come on, guys. All right. Not a true story, okay? Not a true story. Um, (laughs) Apparently cheesier than I thought. Uh, All right. You don't know when that is. You don't know when you're going to die. You don't know. But here's the deal. Until then, we don't give up. Until then, we don't lose hope. We trust that the Lord has a plan. There's a time to say, okay, Lord, I'm ready to go. As a matter of fact, that time is now. We should always be ready to go if that's where the Lord calls us. Always. But we don't give up hope. Here's some of these guys give up hope. And I understand why the, why the people who didn't believe in Jesus had given up hope. All these Romans, these, these people, I understand why they had given up hope. It didn't look good for them, and they didn't have faith in God, right? They're worshiping some statue somewhere, and they knew that that piece of rock wasn't going to come save them. But believers, we cannot give up hope because the Lord has a plan in the storm. He has a plan in the storm. He will prepare you for the storm that you're going to enter. He will be with you in the middle of that storm, and he will give you whatever it is that he has for you at the end and after that storm. Okay, Paul was prepared for this storm. If anybody was prepared to go through difficulty, it it had to be Paul. He had been through all kinds of stuff. Jesus had built him up, okay? He was ready for this storm. I don't know that Paul felt that he was ready for it when this thing started happening, but he was ready. And I don't mean this. Listen carefully. I don't mean that Paul was ready because Paul was so strong and had so much strength. Not at all. 
the opposite. I don't think Paul had the strength at all to deal with this. I think Paul was ready because over the course of his life, more and more and more, he had put his life in in the hands of the Holy Spirit. He had put his life in the hands of Jesus Christ, and he trusted Jesus. The strength wasn't Paul's. It's just that Paul, by this time in his life, had more and more and more learned how to let Jesus take the wheel, right? (laughs) That's what had happened. Paul had, had given more and more and more of that to Jesus, trusted him more and more and more. That's what makes you ready for a storm. Not big muscles. That's not what makes you ready for a storm, right? Not a tough mind and, and you can do it and tell yourself how great you are. Those are not going to get you ready for a real storm because here's the deal. You can't handle a real storm. You don't have it. Only God does. That's why these people gave up. They didn't have God, right? Or they weren't trusting him, one or the other. Paul, on the other hand, had progressively more and more throughout his life had to learn to trust Jesus. And that's what had prepared him to deal with this storm. That's what had prepared him. Okay. What did God do in the middle of this storm? Well, the first thing I see is that he drew Paul close to himself, right? He drew Paul close to himself. He actually visited, had an angel visit Paul, which is pretty incredible stuff. But as Paul no doubt had been in a lot of prayer, I'm guessing, as that nor'easter was bashing this ship and it looked like they were all going to die, it was a time where he was spending an awful lot of time in prayer. Now, how many of you, and you don't have to raise your hands because I already know the answer to this, all of you who have ever been through a serious storm, a serious difficulty, would probably say that it was a time in your life where you were probably closer to the Lord than any other time. Because it draws you, because you need him, and you have to rely on him. It's a shame that we have to get cancer or lose a family member or, or whatever it is, right? Have our spouse or whatever in order to press into the Lord like we do. But the fact is, that's, that's what happens. And when that happens, we're drawing close to him. And he's meeting us there. And so in the midst of the storm, one of the things that God will do is draw you in. As you press in and draw close to Jesus, some of the most amazing experiences of closeness with God will happen in the midst of your storms. Some of the most hearing from him that will happen. Here's the other deal. Paul had an audience. There were 276 people on that boat, including Paul. And Paul got to witness to the power of the one true God. I love the section where he says this. He says, it says, For there stood by me in the night an angel of the God to whom I belong. Right? The God to whom I belong and whom I serve. Paul knew who he was. He belonged to God and served God. Paul witnesses to all of these people, okay, to all of these people, the good news of Christ at some level here. Because he's saying, look, I belong. That means I'm saved. I'm justified. I'm redeemed. This is the God who I belong. I serve this God. And then he gets to say, and my God is going to save you all alive. And of course, God does. What a powerful testament. Now, Paul had to go through that storm in order to have that be able to happen, in order to have this audience that's watching him and saying, this one claims this Jesus. This one's talking about this Jesus. That's why he's here. That's why he's in these chains. He's talking about this Jesus. Let's see how he reacts when the storm comes. And do not believe that when you go through a storm, that you don't have an audience. You do. You do have an audience. You're being watched, both by Christ followers, who your job is to add to their discipleship, and by non-believers, who your job is to let God use you to draw them to himself. Paul got to pray and thank God in front of them. And here's the other cool thing, is that these people were saved for Paul's sake. The angel told Paul that he had to go before Caesar and that God had granted Paul all those who sailed with him. Because Paul was in the midst of the storm, the rest of those people got to live. Now that's a testimony. Now I want you to think about this. Those who are watching you through the storm, God may save them in a much more significant way too by what you do, the way that you deal with your storm. If you trust God in the storm, in the difficulty, that's a witness to what you believe. It's a witness to your faith in Jesus Christ. And you very well may draw, or the Lord may draw people through you and through what you, what you go through 
as they witness your actions as you walk through the storms in your life. You do not know the impact. You do not know the impact that you will have on other people by showing faith and consistency in your faith in Christ as you go through storms. Now, there's a lot of people watching. Your spouse is watching, your children are watching, your friends are watching, your coworkers are watching. All these people are watching, but here's the deal. Make no mistake about this. These people do not expect you. The way to show faith in Christ is not to act like you're not affected by storms. It's not to be like, no, it's no big deal. It's just flesh-eating bacteria. I've lost half my body. It'll be fine. I'll see you for basketball at 6 o'clock on Wednesday. It's not like that, right? You don't pretend like nothing bad is going on because that's not true. You can be honest in, the, in, in a couple things. This storm sucks. It's the worst, and I'm not up to dealing with it. I, there's nothing I can do to get myself out of this. There's nothing I can do to handle it. It's, it's overwhelming. It's beyond me, but I trust Jesus Christ. I trust that whatever his will is in this situation, I will follow that. I will trust it. It's that that people are looking for. It's not for you to pretend like nothing bad happens to you because that's a lie. And, that's, and, that's, and then if they come to the Lord and they say, okay, I'll follow Jesus. Look, nothing ever happens to, to this person. Every time I think they're in a storm, they're acting like they don't, it doesn't even affect them. Well, I want that. But that's not real. It does affect us. It's not that it doesn't affect us. It's not that our courage isn't tested. It's not that our faith isn't tested. It's that our faith stands strong. That's what's going to draw people. That in spite of the difficulties that we trust that God's will will be done in this situation, we trust him that his will is good. So is it okay to pray to not face storms, knowing that they can have all this good stuff happen? Heck yeah, it's okay. <laughs> I would pray. I do pray. I don't like facing storms. I don't like it. And when I'm in storms, I pray to get out of them. You should too. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. But you also need to recognize that when God doesn't get you out of them, that there's a reason for that. There's a reason why you're facing them and that you will grow through facing them. Here's the thing. Don't let storms steal your joy. Don't let storms steal your joy. They say every cloud has a silver lining. I don't know much about clouds, but let's assume that that's true. Um, I'll say this. There's no storm that comes upon you. There's no storm that comes upon you that can take the most important thing that you have in Jesus Christ, and that is forgiveness, grace, salvation, and a future hope. None of that can be taken from you by any, any storm. Yeah. Yeah, rest in that. Because no matter what the storm, no matter how difficult, you know one thing. You are redeemed, rescued, saved, forgiven. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is on you. And the Holy Spirit is in you. Those are things that can't be taken away. You can have joy in your salvation even when things are the worst. Even when you're going through incredible pain and suffering, you can still have that joy. Joy is not happiness. Joy is that feeling of surety that you have that you're in Christ and that thankfulness for what he's done in forgiving you. You can always have that. And here's the other thing. And I talked to one of the young folks in our church about this recently who was you know, kind of going through a storm and it's kind of like everything is the worst. Every, you know, Eeyore, woe is me, right? Everything is the worst. We've all been there. We all do that sometimes. And, and here's what I'd say. Even in the worst storms, there are things to lighten the mood. There are things to still be joyful for. Hey, I'm not dead yet. I still got my kids. I still got my wife. You know, start counting the blessings that you do. I, I imagine that as the ship is going through all this stuff and whatever, at some point, one of those tri you know, sailors tripped and like split his pants. That's funny. Laugh at it, right? It's all you've got in the middle of that storm, right? Or some sailor passed gas or something. You got to laugh. You got to enjoy life. There are, there are always things even in the middle of the worst storms, there are always things about life that you can enjoy. You do not have to live in absolute misery, even in the most misery that you have. Because of that joy, you can still find things that are good. Count your blessings. Don't always think about just the storm. You can't, you can't live vibrantly in the midst of suffering if you can't at least find some of the things that are good. So don't let a storm steal your joy. Not everything is bad, starting with the joy of your salvation.
Here's the last point I want to make. God knows what he will give you the strength to handle. I spoke recently, uh, I don't know how many weeks ago, about uh, a, a time with my son where we, had, we used to have a pool, and I wanted him to dive, and he didn't really want to do it, and so I kept trying to get him to do it, but he wouldn't do it, so eventually I said, okay, look, I'm going to grab you, and I grabbed him, and I threw him in head first into the water because I'm an awesome dad. All right, now listen, he didn't like that, okay? To this day, I mean, the therapy bill has been insane. You know, it was not worth it, not worth it. But here's the deal. Here's the thing. And it, and it wasn't a good idea, okay? Dads, don't be like, well, Pastor David, did I throw my kid in the... Don't do that. But here's the thing that I will say. I knew it would be a storm for him. I knew he was afraid. I knew there was going to be some suffering, some difficulty for him. But I believed, A, that it was going to be good for him. Whether I was right or wrong about that, I believed that it was going to be good for him. And I knew that I would not let anything happen to him. Right? I knew, he didn't know, but I knew that no matter what happened when he hit that water, if I saw any signs of struggle, I would get him, I would bring him out, I would save him out of that water. I knew that. And at the same time, I thought it was a good idea <laughs> to throw him in head first into the water. This story is not good, maybe. I, I thought it was a good idea, right? But as his father, as his father, I knew that the storm, I believed that the storm was beneficial, and I knew that I had him, that I had him. Now, as a parent, you're going to let your kid go through some storms, and there are some that you're going to come and rescue them from. And there's some that you're going to let them follow through to the end, right? It's that whole Finding Nemo thing. That whole, you know, you can't, let your, you can't keep your kids so protected that they never experience anything or they'll never grow. And if you know how to do that, if you know, uh, if you can make good decisions about when to rescue and when to let the storm go, how much more can God do so? Matthew 7, 9 through 11. Or what man is there among you if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone, or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? God knows how to take care of his children, and God knows the whole story eternally. He knows what's good for you. He knows what you need, not just to follow him and live for him now, but don't you understand that what you're doing now is also having eternal significance? You're not just you, and then all of a sudden you're going to die. Don't get this idea. You're going to die, and you're going to become an angel and fly away. You're you. When you're in Christ, you're you. You're going to be you, just more you than you've ever been. And all these experiences and these storms that you've gone through now, when you are transformed fully, when the full kingdom comes, you're gonna, those things are going to be important. He's training you. He's training you to be his children in his kingdom forever. He knows what's good. If you know what's good, throwing your kids in the pool, you jerks, right? If you know what's good, how much more does God know what's good? Think about that in your next storm. Now, Scripture tells us this in Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Listen, all things work together for good. He will work all things together for good. Believe that, trust that, it will make it much easier next time the ship is breaking up. Believe it. All things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. That doesn't mean you're not going to die, by the way. That does not mean that you're not going to die. It just means you're not going to die before God's ready for it to happen, before it's what's good, eternally. It doesn't mean that you uh, will not go through storms. It just means he's going to be with you in the middle of those storms. It doesn't mean that you will see all the fruits of all the things that happen as you, the audience watches as you go through those storms, but he will see because he's the one who's making it happen, and he's the one who's using your storms to draw others to himself. And someday you'll get to see, too, as he shows you, and he says, look at this. Hey, Lori, look at this thing that you went through. And look at, I want to show you something. Come over here. And there's 15 people or 20 or 1,000 that came to Christ by the ripple that got set out from the, from the storm that you faced and handled correctly. You don't know. You don't know, but don't undersell what God can do through small acts of faithfulness in the midst of storms. Your duty is to trust God in all things. In the good times, in the difficult times. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Trust God in the storm. And never forget this as we close. 
Never forget this. In the midst of the storms of this life, Jesus Christ has given you a couple of things. A couple of things that are incredibly important. One is his Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit. And the second is his church. You have each other. We are here with you in your storms. We are the body of Christ. This is something that Christ has given to us. As brothers and sisters in Christ, we're here to walk through storms together, to be that shield wall. So plug into the shield wall. Lean on the shield wall. Be the shield wall for those who are going through storms. Don't ever forget. Don't isolate in the middle of storms, which is our tendency, so many of us. Press in. Press in to where you're going to find others who also have the Holy Spirit, others who love you and will walk through the storms with you. Listen, I love you. You all need to love each other. In the midst of these storms that are so hard, look, Paul made it through, though. That's the good news, right? Paul made it through this storm. And, and God will bring you through many storms in your life. There will be an end. The day will get bright. You'll see the sun and the stars again. Trust God. Trust God. All this is according to his will. So lean into Jesus Christ in faith. Lean into his church. Trust him and have faith. Let's pray. Well, thanks for listening to our sermon. Again, this has been a sermon from Axe Church in Camas, Washington. We hope you enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. If you did, you can subscribe to our channel as well as liking and commenting. We love to hear how these sermons are impacting you. You can also take a look at our podcast series that we have out. And we'll catch you again next week.